let's come to God in prayer before we look at this passage. I'll pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. Thank you that all of the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. Thank you that this is true of our passage tonight in 1 Kings 22. And may your spirit be at work in us as we listen so that we remain focused, free from distraction, and ready to receive and to believe all that your word says. Now please use me in my weakness to teach and apply this word well. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, most of us have received news we didn't want to hear this past week. Lockdown has uh, lockdown extended for at least another seven days. And I'm sure there was a number of you who had all sorts of plans and goals for this week. But instead of that, you're getting another week of being confined to your home, back on Zoom, and distracted by all the latest COVID headlines. Lockdown was the message I expected to hear. It was not the message I wanted to hear. It's always hard to receive news we don't want to hear. Sometimes we just accept it. Other times we we rage against it. Uh, In our passage today, we see King Ahab, who we've come to know over the last five chapters or so, receive some news he doesn't want to hear. God, through his prophet Micaiah, gives Ahab a final message of judgment for his rebellion and wickedness against God. This is a message he expects to hear at some level, but doesn't want to hear. And so he chooses to fight to the death against both the message and messenger in a futile attempt to change the equation. Now we're going to consider the foolishness of King Ahab in this chapter, but I also want to think about the role of Micaiah in this chapter, the prophet who gets caught up in Ahab's resistance towards God and his word. See, I think there is something we can learn from Micaiah's experience with Ahab. You see, Jesus tells us that as Christians, we too will get caught up in the world's resistance against God. We too will have people rage against us because of God's confronting word, which we hold to and which calls out human sin and rebellion. Jesus says in John 15 that if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Micaiah's experience teaches us what it looks like to keep trusting God when the world seems to be so against us. And there are four features I want to consider in Micaiah's experience with Ahab. The first is the way he is hated uh, because of the word. The second is the way he's pressured to change the word. Third is the way he's faithful to the word. And fourth is the way he's vindicated, proved true by the word of God. Hated, pressured, faithful, vindicated. So let's jump into the first point. Micaiah is hated because of the word of God. See, Ahab thinks of this prophet Micaiah basically like a drug lord thinks about a police officer, a hated enemy that is hell-bent on ruining all his illicit fun and personal plans. And at the start of this chapter, we're told that what Ahab's personal plans are at this point in time. Just like in the previous chapter with Naboth, 
this chapter starts with Ahab just wanting more stuff. But this time it's not just a vineyard he's after, but an entire city. We see that in verse 3, saying to his officials, he says, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and yet we're doing nothing to take it from the king of Aram? Uh, Ramoth Gilead sat uh, just east of the Jordan River. And while it's true that it did belong to Israel at one point, it's also true that this was uh, this city stood as a vital trade route between nations that brought in loads of money through tax revenue. And I suspect it's the potential revenue that has got Ahab interested here. And so Ahab decides to end a three-year peace with the nation of Aram and take that city by means of war. Now what's also important to note at this point in history is that there is an alliance between the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And during one particular state visit by King Jehoshaphat of Judah, Ahab asks him to help reclaim that city. We see it in verse 4. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat agrees, but on one condition, verse 5, first seek the counsel of the Lord. And that request kind of fits with the general picture we are given of Jehoshaphat in verse 43, later in this chapter. He's described as one of the pretty good kings of Judah. He wasn't perfect, but in general, he sought Uh, He sought to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And here, he rightly desires to have God's word guide the decision-making process when it comes to war with Aaron. And so, while Ahab agrees to that request, it's clear that something is suspect about the 400 prophets that he brings in to give the Lord's counsel. They just seem a little too willing to give Ahab the message he wants to hear. Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. See, Ahab seems to have brought in the yes men, all 400 of them. And clearly Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, thinks there's something fishy about all of this, and that's why he says in verse 7, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here who we can inquire of? It's kind of like he's saying, no offense, Ahab, but these guys just seem a little bit like yes men to me? Is there anyone else who might be willing to give us a word from God, even if that word is a hard word? And so Ahab is kind of forced into a corner with his chief ally, and he begrudgingly mentions the name of one prophet he has really grown to hate. We see it in verse 8. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, well, there's one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. See, before Micaiah even comes on the scene in this chapter, we learn that he is hated for the word of God he bears. And that's what happens when you get caught up in the collision between God's word and human will. And it's no different for followers of Jesus today. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that you will be hated because of me to his disciples. Sticking with Jesus puts us in the firing line of a world that is in rebellion to God and his king. See, I don't think Aussie Christians have really felt 
the hate, historically speaking, in a major way. But I do think that's changing. See, even just 20 years ago when I was in high school, I think most people, at least in my town, kind of looked at Christians and saw them as the do-gooders, those who took the rules just a little too seriously. Odd types, perhaps, who seemed a little uptight, but ultimately had their own beliefs and were harmless. I think that view is changing, so that now Christians are increasingly viewed as do-badders, people who have dangerous, bigoted, oppressive beliefs, which clash with the expressive individualism of our culture. In his book, Being the Bad Guy, Stephen McAlpine points out that in the West, Christianity is increasingly viewed as the bad guy. He writes that we are increasingly seen as being on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, he writes, we would be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. See, like Ahab with Micaiah, many in our world are beginning to look at Christians today and they're thinking they have they never have anything good to say, but always bad. Now, that may be hard for some of you to hear, particularly when you know that the message of Jesus is primarily one of good news. But we need to be aware of the changing attitudes in our culture or we could be taken off guard and unprepared. You see, both Micaiah's experience and Jesus' words remind us that being linked with God's word often brings irritation and hatred by many in the world around God's people. And as a flow-on effect of that, it brings pressure, which is what we see in the next point. Micaiah is pressured to change the word. We see this when Ahab gets his messenger to bring him in. Now, I want you to try and picture in your mind the scene described for us in verses 10 to 12 of this chapter. And as you do that, think about just how intimidating it would be to walk into that room, into that scene, with a message that no one wants to hear. For starters, you might immediately feel intimidated by the sight of the two most powerful men in Israel and Judah, dressed in their royal robes, we're told, sitting on their thrones, verse 10. That would be a scary sight, particularly when you know at least one of those kings will only be happy if the word of God you speak aligns with his will. But the pressure just gets worse as you then see the hordes of of other so-called prophets standing in that room, every one of them united in the message that the king should attack Ramoth-Gilead, verse 12, and be victorious. Verse 11 tells us that one of those false prophets, Zedekiah, even brings in a spectacle of props, iron horns, to to show just how the Lord will gore the enemy. See, imagine walking into that scene and thinking you have to be the lone voice in a sea of 400 other false prophets giving the opposite message. And just to add to all that pressure, you also have 
the well-intentioned messenger giving you some helpful advice on the way in. Look at what he says in verse 13. Look, all the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. Micaiah, there's a real positive vibe going on in there. Don't kill the mood. Just give them what they want to hear. Imagine if you were in that position and being pressured to change the word of God you know with the popular message they believe. You actually may not have to imagine too hard, though, perhaps. Because I suspect many of you have actually had a taste of that pressure in your workplace or around your family table or over the fence with a neighbor. See, that kind of just speak favorably pressure, I think, is starting to pervade everywhere in our lives. I remember feeling that pressure a number of years ago when advocacy for same-sex marriage was just starting to gain a lot of traction in the media. I was at a friend's backyard barbecue, happily chatting with a number of people around a fire, Uh, but that happy chat suddenly sort of switched gear when one particular neighbor heard me mention that I was a Christian. Almost immediately, she asked me in front of everyone this question. So if you're a Christian... Do you believe homosexual sex is wrong, and if so, why? I just remember standing there, all these eyes glaring at me, waiting for the answer. It was one of those moments where you feel a bit tongue-tied, your heartbeat rises, you play out in your head what might come next, and I'm sure you know that feeling. In that moment, the words of the messenger to Micaiah are kind of ringing in your ear. Look, just so many are on board with this. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. So you don't have to be standing before an Ahab or his prophets to know the pressure the world puts on God's people to change his word. What does God call for in moments like that? Well, as hard as it is, and it can be hard, God calls for faithfulness. Faithfulness to the word he has given us, which brings us to point three. Micaiah is faithful to the word of God, even uh, amidst hatred and pressure. Now, most of us aren't going to find ourselves standing in the pressure cooker situation of Micaiah, uh, but there have been some in church history who have come pretty close to it. Uh, Martin Luther was the German monk who sparked the Protestant Reformation. He found himself in similar circumstances to Micaiah in many ways in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, or just to make things less confusing there, the assembly held in the city of Worms. Luther was under pressure at that assembly to recant statements he had made condemning the Roman Catholic Church. Luther had declared that various practices and beliefs of the church were wrong and had no basis in the word of God. When Luther walked into that room, uh, when Luther walked into that room, he stood before the most powerful man in Europe, Emperor Charles V, I assume dressed in his royal robes, but also met a host of the most powerful clergymen 
uh, in the church. All saying the same thing, recant. Take back what you said. Imagine the pressure to just simply say what they want to hear. And yet here is what Luther said in his concluding statement at that assembly. I am bound by scripture, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. I am bound to the word of God, said Luther. I cannot say anything it does not say. And notice that is the same response of Micaiah to the messenger as they both walk into that room together. Verse 14, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. Here I stand, I can do no other. So what is the word that Micaiah faithfully speaks to Ahab? Well, put simply, it's the word of judgment that will spoil all his plans and bring him to destruction. It's the very word that Ahab expects and the very word he doesn't want to hear. But there are a couple of things that surprise us about what Micaiah says. The first surprise is that Micaiah initially appears to say the exact same thing as all the false prophets around him. When asked by Ahab if they should go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, notice that Micaiah says in verse 15, attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now that seems odd to us. Why does Micaiah seem to just give Ahab what he wants to hear? Now it could be that the pressure of the moment gets to him and he has a momentary lapse of courage. I could see myself doing that. Maybe you could see yourself doing that but I'm not sure that's what's going on here. I actually think that Micaiah is using a kind of sarcasm here, a tone which is obviously hard to convey in a written text, but I think it's sarcasm for a couple of reasons. The first is that Micaiah has literally just committed himself to saying only what the Lord tells him, verse 14. And we know he's not been shy of that in the past. That's why Ahab hates him. But second, Ahab actually seems to be annoyed rather than satisfied with that response from Micaiah. He senses that Micaiah is deliberately holding something back from him and he doesn't like it. So he says, how many times, Micaiah, must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? I think Micaiah speaks sarcastically here in order to expose Ahab's stubborn refusal to listen to God. It's kind of like he's saying, I know your mind is made up, Ahab. doesn't matter what I say. There's only one message you want to hear. So why don't you just do what all the false prophets are telling you? Go attack, be victorious. But that just infuriates Ahab. And he demands Micaiah, spits out the truth. He hates the truth but he kind of wants to have it too, doesn't he? And so in verse 17, it's almost like Micaiah says in response, all right, Ahab, will you want the truth? Well, the truth is that I didn't see victory at all. Instead, verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. 
Let each one go home in peace. The truth is, Ahab, you're going to be killed and your army will be scattered when you go to war. Micaiah swims against the stream of 400 other prophets and faithfully speaks the hard word of truth to Ahab. I wonder how it's been for you when, slash if, you've ever taken the bold step of telling someone the hard truth of sin and judgment before you get to the good news of forgiveness and life through trusting Jesus. I wonder if you can remember the last time you made it clear that without repentance and trust in Christ, a person will die in their sin and come under God's judgment in hell. In Christianity Explored, whenever we get to session three on sin, I'm always feeling a little bit nervous. I always need extra prayer because I know that message is just so confronting for many. But before you get to the good news of Jesus, before people can repent and believe, a person must be aware of the bad news of their sin. But you see, sometimes when the hard truth comes, it's not, thanks for warning me, now what? Sometimes it's, why could you believe such a negative message? It's a bit like that with Ahab. Instead of heeding that word of imminent danger that he's just been told, he just gets irritated at Micaiah. He uh, irritated that Micaiah insists on being so negative. You see that in verse 18. He leans over to Jehoshaphat and says, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Why do you have to be so negative, Micaiah? Now, I said a moment ago that there were a couple of surprises in what Micaiah says to Ahab. The second surprise is the sneak peek that he gives us behind the curtain of heaven. So it's not often in the Bible that we uh, get that kind of glimpse, but we get it here. God chooses to reveal the formation of his heavenly plan to bring judgment on Ahab. So read with me from uh, what Micaiah says in verse 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitude of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? Now, we read that a few suggestions are given amongst the host of heaven. But the one that God goes with comes from a spirit who offers to go down to earth and become a deceiving spirit in the mouths of Ahab's prophets. God says this spirit will succeed in enticing Ahab and he sends him off to get the job done. And in verse 23 we read, So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now, while the talk of deceiving spirits raises questions and eyebrows for us, I'm sure, there are a few things we need to keep in mind about this extra piece of information Mackay gives to Ahab. I've got three things I want to say about it. First is this vision reveals who really rules. Uh, and we all need to get that straight. It's not us, it's God. See, the image of God's throne room is deliberately set in contrast with the throne room of Ahab back in verse 10. 
Ahab wrongly believes it is his rule and his will that will prevail, but God is reminding him who is really in charge here. We're supposed to see how puny Ahab's throne is in verse 10 compared to the throne of God in verse 19. But second, this vision reveals the fitting nature of Ahab's judgment. See, Ahab has lived his whole life willingly believing and being enticed by lies. Thus, the deceiving words in the mouths of his prophets act as a punishment that fits the crime. Just as he loved lies, so he will be destroyed by them. It's a little bit like the picture of judgment Paul gives us in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, in which God speaks there about giving people over to their sinful desires of their hearts. But third, uh, this vision reveals Ahab's last chance to repent. You see, while some might want to accuse God of unfairly deceiving Ahab right here, the reality is, is that there's no ultimate deception. God is telling Ahab everything. He's revealing it all right now. He tells Ahab that in listening to the lie that he wants to believe, that's how disaster will come upon him, verse 23. This message is Ahab's last chance to hear the hard truth and repent before it's too late. And so Micaiah faithfully speaks the hard word of truth to Ahab. And yet still, Ahab sticks with the lie. There's no repentance. He doesn't change his plans. We see him going off to war very soon. Micaiah finds no love in that room. Cold, hard rejection. First from Zedekiah, the, one of the false prophets who slaps him in the face, 24, uh, verse 24. And then next from Ahab himself, who locks him up and puts him on bread and water. Uh, I was speaking to a Christian brother recently who uh, spoke about his evangelistic ministry in the city and how he was headbutted while sharing the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't say I've ever been headbutted for sharing God's word or slapped in the face like Micaiah or put in jail. But Jesus is clear that speaking, even living by his word, will bring real and uncomfortable cost. Now, you might be socially marginalized uh, in your neighborhood, for example, for being that religious kind of nutcase in House 32 on Bogus Street. Or you might be cut off from family inheritance for departing from your former religion. Or you might be reprimanded in your workplace for your commitment to Jesus' teaching on sexuality. Jesus says in John 15, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. So why remain faithful to God's word if it's just going to mean hate, pressure, persecution? Well, what happens at the Battle of Ramoth-Gilead, which happens next, gives us the answer. You see, that leads us to the point four. Micaiah is vindicated by the faithful word of God that always comes true. You see, while we read of a battle between Israel and Aram, the real battle going on here is actually between God's word, spoken by Micaiah, and Ahab's will, endorsed by the false prophets. And Ahab has a wild level of self-confidence going into this battle. 
He actually thinks that he can outsmart God's word with a plan of his own. You see it there in verse 30. They're going into battle, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll enter battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. You see, Ahab thinks he's got it made here, right? How will God get me if they can't find me? I suppose it's checkmate in his mind with God. And at first, Ahab's plan actually does seem to be working in many ways. In verse 31 to 33, those verses describe how the king of Aram sets his men just to get uh, the king of Israel, Ahab, but they get all confused about where he is. They can't find him. But it's not long before Ahab gets a sudden and painful reminder of whose will and whose word truly rule. Look at verse 34. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. You see, no one escapes the word of God. The arrow of God's judgment always hits its target, even if it seems random to us, random to the person who even shot it. And as Ahab is hit with that arrow, it actually starts to dawn on him, I think, that God's word has defeated his will. Ahab is wheeled out of the fighting, you can see there, and is kept alive, propped up in his chariot, just long enough to see the battle lost and to hear the panicked cry of his army shouting out in verse 36, every man to his town, every man to his land. So I, I kind of imagine Ahab slumping down onto the floor of his chariot in that battle with the words of Micaiah running through his mind, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like, a sheep, without a she- like sheep without a shepherd. Or perhaps he was thinking of the words of Elijah back in the last chapter with Naboth. As dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they will lick up yours. But one thing is for sure, Ahab dies knowing that Micaiah was speaking the truth and that God's word of justice has been fulfilled. Verse 38, they washed his blood. In, uh, they washed the chariot at, at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord declared. Micaiah spoke God's word to Ahab, and he was hated for it, pressured to change it, yet faithful to it, and finally vindicated, proved true by it. And there are two things I just want to say as we come to a close. First is the warning, the second is an encouragement. First, we need to heed the warning of Ahab's life here. We've been thinking about him for the past few weeks. Did you notice that in the, the final verses the narrator writes about, in the final verses that the narrator writes about Ahab and his other achievements, he kind of casts Ahab's other achievements as somewhat irrelevant as to the the greater picture of his life. Read them with me from verse 39. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and adorned with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? Yeah, if you want to go read about that stuff, you can go read it somewhere else. It's not that important right now. It's kind of like the narrator is saying, there was only one thing 
that really mattered in Ahab's life. And it wasn't the palace he built with ivory, it wasn't the cities he fortified that impress us. It was actually his relationship with God and whether or not he listened to God's word. Five chapters are given to that issue, one verse given to his building projects. See, maybe you're here tonight and you know your relationship with God is not sorted out. Maybe like Ahab, you've been unwilling to give God and his word airtime in your life. Maybe like Ahab, you've taken some sense of comfort in the multitude of other voices in our world telling you that it's fine to live life on your terms, not God's terms. Ahab's life comes as a warning to you to make it your chief priority to get right with God. See, Jesus teaches us not to be like the rich fool in one of his parables, a man who had everything and yet suddenly died without the one thing that truly mattered. Jesus says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We must be rich towards God. The big thing that God will truly care about at the end of your life when you go to rest with your ancestors is not going to be how many properties you owned or the type of career you had or how many adventures you went on or who you fell in love with. The big thing that God cares about in your life will be whether or not you listen to his word of forgiveness and life that he gives to you now in Jesus. Jesus, the saviour who takes away the sin that separates you from God through his atoning death and his victorious resurrection. God's word of life in Jesus is as certain as his word of judgment on Ahab. Don't wait until it's too late to make things right with God by trusting Jesus. But for those of you who are listening, uh, those of you who are already listening to God by trusting Jesus, daring and daring to speak of Jesus where you get the chance, living his way, I'd encourage you to prepare to walk the path of Micaiah. See, Micaiah shows us that the uncomfortable path of faithfulness in a world resistant to God's word is actually worth it. Though you might be hated, though you might be pressured for the gospel word, if you keep that word faithfully, if you hold to it, you will experience vindication. You'll be proved right as someone who was wise before a world who wrote you off as perhaps an irritation or a fool. In fact, Jesus shows us the glory of this path in much greater detail than Micaiah. Jesus was hated for the word that he preached about himself. He was pressured to change his message. And yet he was faithful to the point of death on a cross. And God vindicated him and all that he had said by raising him from the dead. In his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, Jesus has now been shown to be the one who really can forgive our sin, who really can give us the hope of eternal life, and who will really be present by his Spirit 
with us in our struggle to hold fast to the word of God in a hostile world. Hebrews 12 gets us to both take hope in Jesus and then follow his lead. It says, and let us run with perseverance the race he has marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Costly faithfulness to Jesus and his word is eternally worth it. And so I'll just finish on the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, who, like Micaiah, felt the cost of living by and proclaiming God's word under the rule of a tyrant. Bonhoeffer writes this, The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They'll be blamed for all the divisions which rend cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining the family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and preserve until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. Hated, pressured, faithful, vindicated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the reminder that your word is faithful and worth listening to, worth holding fast to, worth speaking Help us to learn from Ahab and make sure we are right with you before our time is up. Help us to learn from Micaiah and endure through any hatred and pressure that comes our way for Jesus' sake. May we remain faithful to the word of Jesus to the end, believing it, speaking it. Keep our hearts fixed on him so that we would enter into the glory of that final day in which we are raised like him to be forever with him as your word declares. In Jesus' name, amen.